Genesis chapter 38. So I don't know if you've ever heard of these programs uh, that you can go online and do. Uh, you can go online and fill out a family tree, right? And uh, you can find out your family of origin, right? So you go online, you start putting your family tree together, you, you start with what you do know, and then you start tracing it back. Uh, you know what we even have today? You could take a test and they genetics and try to figure out where you've come from. It's just uh, so amazing, the genetic ancestry test. And so it's pretty interesting. So um, probably about uh, two or three years ago, I um, started doing that little thing. And if you go online and this particular one, they give you a little leaf and it will let you know, oh, here's somebody else that you may be want to uh, check into because this may be part of your family. And so as I got this opportunity, I was going back and uh, got into the early 1900s, got into the um, late 1800s, and then I, I ran into some difficulty as will happen for those that are African-Americans that uh, uh, were part of slavery in the United States. Some of the records were not as clear. I, I did find it quite interesting, though, that uh, part of my family comes from Virginia. And um, so as we were finding this out, my family, there's a member of my family that fought in the Civil War. Who knows? He fought on the Confederates. He owned slaves, and in all likelihood, my family member was a byproduct of a slave relationship. And, and when you sit down and think about it, and you think about this genealogy, and you start to think that this family member did not see me as fully connected or equal to him, and he's my family member. It's probably not a person, naturally, that we would put on our social media page. I want you to think about somebody from your family that has probably done some things that you don't like, and you're probably not going to put them out there on your Facebook page or your Twitter account. Somebody that's done some terrible things or things that you don't agree with, you, you probably would not put them there. But Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ took people that were a mess. He took people that did heinous things. He took people that did things that would embarrass you or haunt you or discourage you. And he didn't hide those people. He put them in his genealogy. They're in his family line. And we're going to see a man today who most of us would run and hide from. This man is listed among one of the first people in Matthew 1 in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I think it's going to show us is this. There, there is nobody, no great, no great your sin, no great the dilemmas, no great the guilt, no great the shame, that God can't do amazing things in your life. And that God wants to connect with enemies. He wants to connect with those who have done the most sordid things. He wants the gospel of grace to be brought into your life and to be brought to bear. So that he publicizes his family picture because he says, you're part of my family by grace through faith an amazing story. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray this morning, as we, as we look into Judah's life, and Lord, there's much in this man's life that would uh, concern us, much in this man's life that I guess we can learn from. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to see his descent into sin, but then his deliverance by the Savior. I pray that we would see that where sin abounds, as Paul said, grace abounds all the more. So Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the wonder of his grace. I pray that as we hear of Tamar and some of the things that she would do, Father, I pray that you would help us to see once again that you can rescue us from the deepest pit because you're greater still. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so now if you were here with us, um, the last time we were in Genesis, we were talking about Joseph. And, and the time before that, we had Pastor Doug do a, a narration of Joseph. And it's like, well, why in the world are now we talking about Judah? And in Genesis 38, if you had an opportunity to read this passage, it will tell us about one of the brothers of, of Joseph. His name is Judah. I will tell you that this is a pretty sordid story. I will tell you that as you look at it, um, some pastors have said that there's nothing lovely in this, in this chapter. One commentator actually said, this is, not bene- this is not for preaching purposes. There's no homiletical benefit to it. We shouldn't preach from this passage. That's what one commentator said. I think they're mistaken. I think that as we get a chance to see the uncleanness of our lives, we see the cleanness of God. When we see the impurity of our lives, we see the purity of God. When we see the sin in our lives, we see the Savior. When we see our guilt, we will see his grace. And if we could see ourselves in so many ways, we're so much like Judah, you can't even imagine. And if you could see yourself in Judah's eyes and in Judah's feet, then you could see the wonder of the gospel that is here. I think this passage is here not only for that reason, to see the wonder of the gospel, but I think this passage is here also because God wants to show that there is a doctrine here of his sovereignty. He is in complete control. We will see that God is in complete control even when it looks like humanity is controlling. You will see the justice of God, that God is actually going to put two people to death in this chapter because they were unholy and wicked. You're going to see the grace of God in the fact that through humanity's sin that God has this gospel thread of grace, the scarlet thread that is there that will show you and point you forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this chapter is also here for another reason. Worldliness has a tendency to invade the body of Christ. And as we live in this world, we're supposed to live in this world, but not of this world. But the reality is that far too oftentimes what we do is we live in this world and we start to become like this world. And what we will see is that Judah starts to live in the world and now he is going to start to become like the world. And what God was going to do was he was going to rescue his people, the nation of Israel, from ungodliness by actually through humanity's sin In Joseph's life, he was going to rescue them. He was going to quarantine them in Goshen to keep them away from the worldliness that would have infiltrated the family of God. I think there's another reason why um, Genesis 38 and Judah's story is here. There's probably a 20-year gap that's going to happen, maybe less, between Genesis 37 and Genesis 39. There's a gap. The last time we saw Joseph, Joseph was being thrown away into slavery. The next time we're going to see Joseph, Joseph is one of the leaders in Potiphar's house. Something has happened in that gap. And what God has done for us is he's given us a story of Judah and what's happening back at home. 
One last reason I think we have this passage is this. The line of the Messiah is going to go through Judah, not Joseph. It's interesting because there's like 12 or 13 chapters on the life of Joseph, and there's one chapter here on the life of Judah. And what God is going to do is he's going to trace his Masonic line, his uh, uh, Messianic line, through the line of Judah, not through the line of Joseph. So this story is here for a reason, to, to speak gospel to you. It's here to show you the black backdrop of life. It's to show you that somebody in your ancestral line, Jesus, is a really bad guy. But it points to the amazing grace of God. So let's look here in verse 1. It says, it, it happened at that time. So after Judas, uh, Joseph has been sold... It says this, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There's a path down. I entitled the message, I'm a great sinner, he's a great savior. I want you to think of his descent into sin in a series of steps. And the first step is this. He separated himself from the family of faith. He separated himself from the family of faith. What it says here is this. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. Now, we don't know why he left his brothers. We don't know why he left his family, but he left them. He took off. He separated himself. And time after time, that's exactly what I think we do in our lives. We turn away from our families. We turn away from the people of faith. God is not even mentioned in this chapter. Prayer is not mentioned in this chapter covenant is not mentioned in this chapter speaking evangelistic ways into the family is not mentioned in this chapter judah had turned away from his family but he had also turned away from his faith you know there was no churches in those times so your family of faith was your church the father his father would have been his pastor and his brothers and his sister would be his congregation and what he did was, after maybe the guilt of what he had done to his brother, he ran away. He separated himself. And it got me thinking that that's exactly where we start our descent into sin as well. How often times is it that when things are not going well in your life that you stop coming to church? Or stop going to men's Bible study or women's Bible study? How often is it that you stop meeting with your accountability partner? Or maybe you don't have one. How often is it that in your life that as you're starting this descent down, you're finding that you are avoiding people? Anybody that is going to talk to you about faith, anybody that is going to convict you of sin, you're running away from. That's exactly what Jesus, uh, Judas, uh, Judas is doing right now. Judah is uh, separating himself from this family of faith. In Jeremiah chapter 2, it says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have rejected me in essence, and they've replaced me. What God was saying through Jeremiah is this, that there were three different ways that you could get water back in this Palestine time. Um, one was this spring water that was there, incredible water, great water, pure water. There was a second way that you can get it, and it is by digging a well, and that was okay. But then there was a third way where it was a, a cistern, it's kind of runoff water. And what God was saying through Jeremiah is what we do, our tendency is to reject God, turn away from pure water, and go to runoff water. 
That's exactly what Judas is, uh, Judah is doing right now. Judah is finding himself, separating himself from his family, separating himself from the family of faith. What foolishness he's doing. He's acting in such ungodliness. He's acting in ungratitude. He's turned away. So how many times have you stopped going to Sunday school? How many times have you stopped going to fellowship? When he left his family, it was like he was leaving his church. Step number two. Judah not only separated himself from his family and separated himself from his faith, but then he secularized himself. He became secular. Verse two. It says it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. We'll stop there for a second. Whenever you reject one thing, you have to replace it with something else. Our, our motto here at the church is that God transforms us through what? Vital relationships. You were created to have vital relationships. So you will either have a vital relationship with God and his people, or you will have a vital relationship with somebody else. You're going to need it. And so when Judah turned away from his father and his mother, and he turned away from his family and his faith, he turned to a secular lifestyle, an ungodly friend. It's interesting that Hira, his name here, is mentioned throughout this chapter. In the next verse, we don't even know his wife's name. His best friend was an ungodly person. And what happens is this. Is there something wrong with having ungodly or non-Christian friends? Absolutely not. But the dilemma is, is this. If we make an ungodly person, a worldly person, an unbelieving person, your best friend, an ungodly person will lead to ungodly thoughts because they are going to teach you. And then you are going to act like that person. When God, when God created humanity, God created humanity dependent. We're dependent creatures. As much as we want to think we're autonomous, we're dependent. We need. We need relationship. But not only did God create us dependent, God created us dependent upon counsel. We will be counseled by those that are in our lives. By the people that are most in your lives, whoever has your ear is going to have your mind. They're going to have your heart. And inevitably, they're going to have your life. So, so God made you dependent. God made you dependent upon counsel. And you will be molded and shaped and changed by the counsel that you listen to. So Judah has separated himself from his family. He has separated himself from his faith. And he became more and more secular in his life. And his best friend was an unbeliever. And he didn't stop there. He went from secularization to sensuality. Verse 2. It says, There Judah saw a daughter of a certain Canaanite woman whose name was Shua. We don't even get her name. All we get is her father's name, Shua. He took her and went to bed with her. And she conceived and bore a son. I find it interesting that... As we go from our separating ourselves from the family of faith and we become more secular, we will become more sensual. What does the world do? The world's viewpoint of love is, is mostly sexual. It's all about your passions. It's all about your desires. It's all about this moment in time. It's not about covenant. It's not about relationship. It's not about responsibility. It's about this moment, the passions. Allow your passions to fuel you. And what we see here with Judah is this. He saw her and he took her. She became an object to him. 
All he saw was this physical beauty. There was nothing about the time that they would spend together. There was nothing in this about the fact that he would spend time and talk about his family or talk about his faith. There was no connection that was there. What was there was simply, I saw this beautiful woman, I took this beautiful woman. And isn't that our world today? Isn't that our relationships? You, I dare you to turn on a TV program today and find a relationship where's a monogamous relationship a relationship where a man is pledged to a woman and he is going to stay committed to her. I dare you to turn on a TV program today where sex is just viewed as no big deal. That you could just do this and have no consequences. Well, that's exactly what happens when you have ungodly friends, you will have an ungodly perspective, and there is inevitably going to be an ungodly behavior. He picks up a non-believing spouse. We, there was a time in, in church where the viewpoint of marrying outside the faith would be frowned upon. Not today. Today, the viewpoint is that I can marry outside the faith. It doesn't matter. Well, God says it does matter because there's severe consequences. Because you're a dependent creature. You're a dependent creature. You're going to be dependent upon the counsel that you connect with, and that person is going to counsel you. They're going to mold you. They're going to shape you. They're going to potentially change you based on the fact that you've aligned yourself. So young people, I ask you, who is your best friend? Who is the best friend that you have in school, young people? What's the group that you hang out with? Who's the person that has your ear? Who's the person that you turn to for counsel? That person is going to determine the direction of your life. We are influenced people. We will be taught and we learn and we will be molded and shaped. And by our society, it's become separated and secular and sensual. What we see here is that Judah picked up an ungodly wife. Now we've had in our church beautiful representations of people that have been connected to unbelieving partners. And now they've become spouses. And that person has been drawn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise God for that. We thank God for those that have come to faith and a spouse that has come to faith. Some of you are in relationships where you're unequally yoked and you're praying that your spouse come to faith in Christ. We pray for that as well for you. But the dilemma is this, that if we set the standard for our marriage relationships with somebody that is unlike us in belief or life, there's a significant consequence that's going to come. Well, Judah separated himself. Judah became secular. Judah became sensual. And then Judah became pretty selfish. Uh, We can continue to read. She conceived, verse 3, and bore a son and called his name Ur. She conceived and bore another son, and she called his name Onan. And yet she bore a son again, and she called his name Shelah. It's interesting that Judah has now married this woman and had children with her, which you would expect. What I find selfish in Judah's life, and I've got one finger out, three fingers are pointing back, is this. But Judah came from a family of faith. His, his great-grandfather great was Abraham. His grandfather was Isaac. His father was Jacob. He knew the story of hope. He knew the story of faith. And he has this 
unbelieving friend, his best friend. But there's nothing in the chapter would ever give us an impression that he ever gospelized his friend, taking a Doug word. There was nothing in the chapter that would ever say that he ever spoke truth. That my best friend is on a road to destruction, you need to come to Christ. There was nothing in that chapter that would say that. There was nothing in the chapter, he's pretty selfish, he married an ungodly woman, a person that's unbeliever. But there's nothing in the chapter that would ever give the impression that he even spoke words of faith to her, prayed for her. None of it. He was selfish to his brother in chapter 37. He is selfish to his best friend. He is selfish to his wife. He has the gospel of grace and he doesn't share it. He's selfish as a father. What we're going to see is that these two sons are, it says this, he actually got a non-believing wife for his son, verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was what? Tamar. But Ur's But Ur, Judah's firstborn son, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And God put him to death. Somebody said we defanged our God today. We made our God a wimp. He has no strength. He has no backbone. He just blows and tosses like the wind. That's the God that we have created today. But there's a holy God. And God, this is the first time in scripture we find that God has put an individual to death. There were others that we will see in the early part, but where he says, I am going to single out this individual and put him to death. Now, we don't know what what Ur did. But the reality is that he did something that was so wicked in the sight of God that God says, I'm done. He's gone. Now, what would happen in this culture is there was this thing called leveret marriage. In leveret marriage, leveret marriage is that as the oldest son, if he dies childless, his name has stopped. His name can't continue. His widow is left Widowless, he, she has no husband. She can't be protected. She can't be cared for. So what you would do is that the next son in line who is unmarried would marry her. Now that seems weird to us in our culture, but this was a way to protect the woman, one, to provide security for the family, two, but it was also a way so that this brother's name can continue. So the second brother... Onan took his, uh, was called to take this wife and to perform a duty to be with her so that she would bear a child. But what Onan did in his selfishness that he probably saw from his father, he spent time physically with this woman, Tamar. He pleasured himself with Tamar, but he avoided taking the responsibility to be able to get her pregnant. He, on the surface, made it look like I'm fulfilling God's law. On the surface, it made it look like I'm fulfilling your law, Dad. But underneath the surface, he enjoyed sex. He took no responsibility. Does that sound like our culture today? Enjoying the physical relationships with others, but not taking the responsibility. And when God saw it, it seems that he did this not just once, but over and over again, he was spending time with his spouse and he was not fulfilling his responsibilities and God put him to death. 
two for two. And the selfishness of Judah towards his brother, the selfishness of Judah towards his father, the selfishness of Judah towards his best friend, the selfishness of Judah towards his wife, the selfishness of Judah towards his, his kids. His first son dies at the judgment of God, and there is no statement here that, that Onan and Shelah, you must be very careful to honor God. There is no counsel that he gives. There is no time that he spends with his sons to say, I was wrong as a father. We need to repent. We need to turn to God. There was none of it. His first son dies. His second son dies. Now what does Judah do? Judah is obligated to give his third son, Shelah, to Tamar so that she may be able to have a child by him. And Judah says, oh no. What he says to Tamar's face is this. I want you to go back to your father's house And when Sheila, my son, is older, I'll give him to you in marriage. But we will see here, verse um, 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, my daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your daughter-in-law's house. And remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up. But here's what's really going on in his heart. More selfishness. For he feared that he would die like the other brothers. So Tamar was to remain in his father's house, her father's house. So here's the deal. As a father, he didn't tell the gospel to him. He didn't speak truth of faith. As a father-in-law, what he did was basically he threw her away. In essence, he is blaming Tamar for his son's wickedness. He is shifting the blame and responsibility to this woman. He said, you're like a black widow. Get away from my family. You're the one that's responsible for Ur's death and Onan's death. He's blaming this woman. Now this woman is is twice a widow. If once a widow in that culture would be hard to find another husband to take care for you, now she's twice a widow. And he's just thrown her away. And the selfishness of Judah just continues to ramp up. So he has separated himself from the family of faith. He has become more and more secular. He has become sensual and sexualized. And now he's selfish. He's even more selfish here. In the course of time, verse 12, the wife of Judah, once again, not even named, Shua's daughter, died. And Judah needed to be comforted. Maybe I'm reading into it. I hope I'm not. It talks about the fact that he needed to be comforted from the loss of his wife. It never said he needed to be comforted from the loss of his sons. It just kind of amazed me. It jumped off the page. It's like, where is it that he grieved for his sons? It's not there. But he needed to be comforted. So after a time of comfort, uh, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. And he went with who? His best friend, Hira, the Adulamite. Verse 13. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she did something interesting. And I should tell you a little bit about sheep shearing. During this time of sheep shearing, what they would do is shear their sheep, but it was also, it was a time of festival, right? They would drink, there was a lot of partying, as revelry. It was, it was Mardi Gras, if you want to call it that. It was that kind of time, right? It was this, uh, this time of worldly fun. Well, that's what Judah is going to do with his best friend Hira, his unbelieving friend. They're not going to a church service, they're going to get drunk and party. Great. 
And Tamar realizes, Sheila's old enough to marry me. And he hasn't given, Judah has not given him to me. So she concocts this plan, which from our viewpoint would sound so preposterous. She goes to a gate, she dresses up as a prostitute, and she tries to get her father-in-law to proposition her. You know what else jumped off the page to me? She must have known that Judah would do it. She must have known that he was unlike Joseph, who we'll read about next week, who is a man of integrity, a man of purity. She must have known his sensuality and his sexuality, that he would go and actually hire a prostitute. Well, she did. She covered herself up, acted like a prostitute, and the payment was going to be a goat. Well, he wasn't carrying a goat at the time. So she says, you know what I'll do? I'll take a pledge from you. You leave me your signet ring. You leave me court, your court, and leave me your staff. You leave me that as your down payment. It's kind of like if I were to pull out my wallet and say, okay, you know what? I'm going to give you my wallet, and here's my wallet. This is a down payment. I'll give this to you, and then I'll come back. I'll bring you your payment, and then you can give me back my wallet. That's, in essence, what he was doing. Well, what did he do? He spent time with her physically, and she laughed, and he laughed, and his selfishness continues. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. She covered her face, and he turned at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that I may come into you? And he said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until I send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet ring, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived. And then he arose. She arose and went away, taking off the veil and the garment, and she went back to her widowhood. Verse 20. When Judah sent a young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, Hira again, to take the pledge back from the woman to grab his wallet back from her, he couldn't find her. Verse 21, and he asked the men of the place, where is the woman that was here, the prostitute? And they said, there's never been one here. So his friend comes back and says, I I tried looking for her, couldn't find her. And Judah says, in essence, let's not, let's leave it. Let her keep the wallet. Because if anybody else finds out about this, we'll be a laughing stock. The selfishness again. He's only worried about himself. You ever find yourself at times um, covering up your sin? And as you cover up this sin, it's like you, you think you did a good thing and you at least feel like you can rationalize your sin a little bit. That's kind of what Judah said. You know, I sent back the goat. I tried to make payment. There is no culpability for the sin that he committed. No guilt, no contrition. It's just I tried to make the payment. I didn't. Judah separated himself. He became secular. He became sensual and sexual. He became selfish. And now he becomes strict and swift in his judgment. Because when you stop seeing your guilt, you stop seeing grace. When you stop seeing your sin, you stop seeing a savior. And inevitably, you put yourself up and above other people. And that's exactly what Judah did. 
because he downplayed Tamar. He devalued Tamar. Tamar was a nothing to him. Verse 24. When three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Oh my. So what does Judah do? Swift, harsh, unloving, uncaring judgment. Bring her out, burn her. Can you imagine? This is my daughter-in-law. Okay, you know what? All right, she did something wrong, but this is my daughter-in-law. Bring her out and burn her. All of the anger over the years. Maybe the grief over his sons that he's been blaming Tamar. Maybe it's the worldliness that has been going through his head. Maybe it's the, the guilt that is there that he's been hardened over this. Maybe he thinks that I can excuse all of this by killing this woman. And when he says, bring her out and burn her. Harsh, unloving, uncaring, no compassion. But isn't that what happens when we become more and more secular? Isn't that what happens when we stop seeing the gospel of God's amazing grace? We attack one another in the church. We attack family members. We attack the world. Well, he attacked her. And as she is being brought out, I mean, God is, you know, the drama of the gospel, the drama of the Bible is pretty cool. She's being dragged out to her execution. And it says in verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. Please identify these. You remember two weeks ago when we were in uh, Genesis 37 and after Joseph was supposedly murdered. You remember what the brothers did? They brought back his coat of many colors and what had they done? They had dipped it in blood and what did they do? You remember? They took it to their father and they said, please identify these. God is interesting. God, God turns the tables on us. The very same words that Judah used to his father and watched his father break down in grief, and Judah had no remorse over that. Now, those same words are being brought to him. Judah, identify your ring, your cord, your staff. Whose are these? By the man who did this, I'm pregnant. Why would Tamar do this? Tamar knew that um, unless she had a child... Ur's name would end. And in that culture, they believed not only would your name end, but your connection to the inheritance would end. You would not get inheritance. But even more than that, some commentators believe that she believed that there was a possibility that he would be in a line of succession and that she desperately needed a child. Now, the measure that she did was absolutely wrong. It was heinous. It was terrible. You should not ever entrap somebody the way she did. But the turnaround, I think the key verse in this whole chapter is verse 26. This is healing. Because his descent into sin now needs a turning point. In verse 26, it says this. Then Judah did what? He identified them. And he said, She's more righteous than I. 
since she, I did not give my son Sheila to her. You ever, I call it a Proverbs 28, 13 crossroads. Some of us have gotten caught in sin. Maybe it's your wife or your husband. Maybe it's your friend. Somebody has caught you in sin at one time. The sad reality is, is that most of us don't confess our sins ahead of time. Most of us have to get caught in our sins. And God in his grace allows for us to get caught. But you are now at a Proverbs 28 crossword crossroad. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, he who conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses it and forsakes it finds mercy. I love that passage because he has now come to the fork in the road. He has now come to the crossroads that as Proverbs 28, 13 says, you are now, the thing has been exposed to you. It is now brought to your face, your signet ring, your cord, your staff, you're the man. It reminds me of David. You remember David when, when Nathan came to him and gave him this great story? And you remember the anger that David had over the story? That man should be in prison and killed. And then Nathan was able to say to him, David, you're the man. And by God's grace, we see in Psalm 51 that David was brokenhearted and confessed his sin. And I think that's exactly what happened here with Judah as well. Judah came to a place where he identified. Confession means to agree with. Repentance means a change of heart. He confessed here, he says, she is more righteous than I. Some commentators say that he's doing this on just a horizontal comparison. Yeah, you know, I'm pretty bad and she's okay. But that's not what I think he's saying here. She's righteous, I am not. He's come to the end of himself. All of the separation, all the secularization, all the selfishness, all the sexuality, he has come to the end of himself and he says, I'm done. I'm done. And it's not just mere confession that she's more righteous than I, but I think there's repentance. The end of the verse says, and he did not know her again. He spent no time with her physically ever again. And then the gospel breaks through. The gospel broke through in Judah's life. The gospel now also breaks through in two kids. Verse 27. When the time for her labor came, there were two twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out his hand and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But then he drew back in And behold, his brother came out. And they named him Perez. What a breach, is what it means. God has this funny way. You know, in Israelite lore, what would end up happening is that the older would be the leader of the family. But God didn't do that in certain cases. It wasn't Abel. I mean, it wasn't Cain, it was Abel. Um, It wasn't Esau, it was Jacob. It wasn't his brothers, Joseph's brothers, it was Joseph. And here, it wasn't Zerah, who was the second born, it was Perez, the firstborn, who was going to receive, I'm sorry, receive the privilege of being the firstborn. What God does is he breaks through. He broke through Judah's hardness of heart. He broke through Tamar's barrenness. 
He broke through error's name ending. He broke through to bring a gospel message. That scarlet thread around the wrist, I don't know, maybe you are the same. It reminded me of Rahab. You remember Rahab and Jericho? As the Israelites are going into Jericho, um, there was this prostitute, another one. Her name was Rahab. And she hid the spies and allowed them to go off. And you remember, the sign was that when we come into the town, the Israelites come into the town to invade Jericho, you remember what she needed to do? She needed to hang a scarlet thread out Rahab's window. And the pledge was this, that anybody that was in your home are saved. Anyone outside the home, their blood be on them. And it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. That anyone who rushes to Christ and rushes to the scarlet thread of his blood has salvation. And what Judah did was this. He turned away from separization. He went back to God. He turned away from secularization. He went back to faith. He turned away from sensuality. He went to following God. He turned away from selfishness. He humbled himself. At the end of the story, what we're going to see is this. You remember there were two sons born to Rachel. There was um, Benjamin and Joseph. Well, Joseph's gone, and Benjamin's here. And what Judah's actually going to do is he did not lay down his life for Joseph previously, but at the end of the story, what we're going to find is he's going to lay down his life for his brother. There's a change of heart. The gospel had invaded his heart. If you read in Matthew chapter 1, you're going to actually see that the very first woman named in Jesus' genealogy is who? Tamar. So I guess I want to ask you, are you a Tamar this morning? Are you somebody who has been victimized, has been discarded, has been marginalized, has been devalued, diminished? Maybe you feel like you're nobody. Maybe you feel like even in God's economy, you're nobody. You're a second-class person. Well, God loves you in Christ. He has wrapped his arms around you. As one pastor said, there is no second-class citizens in God's economy. We're all first-class citizens in God's family. So maybe you're a Tamar here this morning. Or maybe you're a Judah. Maybe you're a Judah because you've separated yourself from your family. Maybe you're a Judah because you've separated yourself and gone into secular world and you, you've found secular friends. Maybe you're a Judah in the fact that you've become sensual in your life. Maybe you're a Judah in the fact that you've become so selfish in what you've done. Maybe you're a Judah in the fact that you've been so swift and harsh in your judgments. But today, God rescues Judahs and God rescues Tamars. What God can do is he can break through all of that just like Perez is the breakthrough. The gospel can break through into your life. So I pray today that today is a day that you would see God in all his glory. There's this hymn, it goes, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon, yes, grace that will cleanse within, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. There's another hymn that goes this way, it goes, 
Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Or how about John Newton? He wrote the hymn, what, Amazing Grace, right? John Newton was also a slave trader. John Newton had also done a number of heinous things. But John Newton, when he got to the end of his life, he says, I'm a great sinner. But Christ is a great Savior. I wonder today, do you know that Savior? Has he broken through in your life? Christ broke through heaven. He broke through that cross. He broke through that tomb. He wants to break through into your life today. Lord, I pray. that you would remind us of your gospel grace and your kindness. Father, the reality is, as I, as I look at Judah's life, his life is such a mess. And Father, from a human viewpoint, why in the world would you ever want your son to include him in his genealogy? Father, I look at my genealogy. I'm not sure I want this person in my genealogy, but they are there. Your son had no problem putting Judah in his genealogy. He had no problem putting Tamar in his genealogy. Because justification is not based on what we do. It's not based on our conduct or character. It's based on the conduct and character of your son. You are in the place of rescuing people like Judah. You're in the place of rescuing people like Tamar. So every Tamar that is here and every Judah that is here, I pray that they would see their sin like Judah did. I am not righteous, he said. I pray that they would see their need for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Judah didn't know the name of Christ, but he was looking forward to a Redeemer. We look back at the Redeemer. We know who he is. We praise you for that. He moved from his sin to a Savior. He moved from his Savior to satisfaction. And his life was changed. He moved from his guilt to grace. And he lived his life in gratitude. Help us to do the same. And for anyone that is here that has never trusted in your son today, that feels like a Judah or a Tamar, I pray that you would drop them to their knees. I pray that they would humble their hearts. I pray that they would turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.